our loving Lord Jesus. We thank you for what this day represents, but it's not just a symbol, that it's an actual event, that you rode into Jerusalem with people saying, Hosanna, 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 and you knew that that crowd's adulation would not stay. You went in there anyway, knowing what would happen. And I, Lord, I just pray that this week you would take that, the reality of that, the center of that message deep, deep, deep into our hearts so that this Holy Week might be a time when we will look back on and say, things really changed for me then. That we will be able during this week to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross is before me, and I'm putting the world behind me. No turning back. I thank you for the wonder of what it is you have offered us, and the freedom and the forgiveness of sin, and all that you went through. Our hearts are there, Lord. Thank you for being here. We pray that you would teach us what you want to know today, want us to know today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, well, welcome to uh, Palm Sunday at East at uh, Eastridge, and um, just want to remind you a couple of things uh, for those of us who are Eastridgers. Uh, remember, like I said last week, let's remember to invite and include. In other words, invite our friends, and when they get here, include them uh, in what's happening here so they don't feel like they're sort of outside. And I know you guys are really good at that, and I know you'll do that. Just want to remind you of the power and the encouragement of what it means when you say, I love my church. Now, I'm not saying you should say that if it's not true. I'm just saying, if you love your church, that's a great way. You know, I just love my church. I'd love to have you come at Easter, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, because uh, if you can give, you know, you're the best expert on whether or not that's been real for you. And so uh, just invite them and encourage them. And I want to say, I love my church. I love you. And the reason I do, and this is for those of you who may be guests with us or new people with us, you need to know, this is a healthy church. It's not a perfect church. There's no such thing in human organizations. There's just not. But it's a, it's a healthy church and getting better and better because we're trying to be more and more like Jesus to love one another like he taught us as he loved us. So just want to encourage you to, uh, to uh, do that and to, to invite uh, anybody you can think of. And even if you don't know them, you know, you're going to Starbucks and, hey, you should come to my church. I love my church. So that kind of thing, okay? Yeah, I'm just, you don't have to be a doofus. But anyway, go. Um, but the second thing I need to say is today's message, we're going to focus on the cross. And for those who uh, parents, uh, I think this is probably a moot point at this point. Uh, the first point after we get into the Bible is going to be a little bit graphic. Not putting anything on the screen, but we're going to talk about the crucifixion. And so just want to let you know that it's sort of PG in that regard, although some of the things that kids see nowadays, uh, who knows. But I um, want to tell you right up front what the point is, what I'm praying will happen. I'm praying that we, as whether we're believers or non-believers... Um, whoever we are, wherever we're at on our journey with God or with Jesus, I'm praying that we will go onward in this sense, that we will go deeper into and, and consider more the, the crucifixion of Jesus and what he went through and what started this whole thing and what this whole week means, okay? That we would take it deeper and um, let the Holy Spirit take it deeper and, and maybe consider some things, uh, a story, an event that happened in history in space and time 
that we, we kind of gloss over sometimes because we think we already know it. I mean, it's, it's the basics of the faith, so we learned it a long time ago, for those of us who are Christians, and we don't consider it as deeply as maybe we ought to. And, and here's the thing. The reason why this is so important is because sometimes we get confused about what the core, uh, the basis, the beginning, uh, the foundation of Christianity is. Christ, the foundation of Jesus following, of the Jesus movement, which is Christianity, the foundation is not Christians. It's not the behavior of Christians. Thank goodness for that. It's not that your prayers have been answered. It's not even that all your questions have been answered. I mean, almost, I don't know anybody really that I can think of. I tried to think of this this week. Anybody that has come to Jesus and become a Christian and had all their questions answered, and that's why they came to Jesus. Shoot, I even have questions. I have my list for heaven when I see God and ask him right? Which I'm going to totally forget about because I'm just going to be, whoa, when I get there. But anyway, um, that's not the foundation of Christianity, which causes history's greatest mystery, you might say. It, it, it's what I would call the curious rise of the Jesus movement. Because when you look at how this thing started, you begin to ask yourself, how in the world did it keep going? How in the world did this happen? That we, that we are here all these centuries later, what exactly is it that caused this to shoot out of the ancient world all the way up to us? I mean, really, when you think about it, when you look at the events that, that is the, are the foundation of Christianity that we celebrate this week, there's an answer in there in Holy Week. But the first half of that answer has to do with the cross. That's why we're looking at it today. But you look at that and some of the, uh, the, the inglorious things that happened you begin, to, man, how did that ever make it out? I mean, we, if you think about it really uh, in, in those terms, you realize we should all be home right now preparing our hearts and minds for the fact that the trailblazers are going to get throttled by Oklahoma City this afternoon. Uh, maybe not. I mean, we can always pray that that won't happen. But, um, or, or we shouldn't have never heard of Christianity. We should have never heard of church. Should have never heard of Jesus, really. It, all things being equal with every other movement and how every other thing has happened in this world, you look at how it started with Christianity and you go, man, how did that happen? And yet here, it is, here we are, uh, people all around the globe, millions and millions of people are worshiping a Jewish carpenter who didn't even have all his sermons recorded. He never had held political office. He never led a revolution. It, none of that happened. And yet here we are. Next week, one third of the planet will sing songs and worship him, and do the same things that we're going to do in languages we've never heard of, it's, it's just extraordinary when you think about it. So I'm asking you to take the pause button in your hands of your life right now, and everything that's swirling around, and I'm going to try to do the same thing, because honestly, I'm not sure I can tell this story as good as those kids just did on the video, but I'm push the pause button for a minute, and, and set all those things aside so that we can look at what it is that actually happened to Jesus. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, you're welcome to follow along on the screen, but we're going to be in John chapter 19 today. So you can open your Bibles to, to John chapter 19. And uh, as, we, as we look at this, just think about this. If you look at any novel, any fictional novel, anything uh, that is talking about a hero, even the so-called historic stuff of the ancient world, uh, that really, you know, is a, are, are puff jobs of the leaders of the ancient world. If you look at that, 
they all start in a completely different place. The hero stories start in a completely different place than we start with the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Look at halfway through verse 16 of 19, 16b, as we say. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with him, two others, and one on each side of Jesus in the middle, with Jesus in the middle. Now, you look at those two sentences there, and it's almost, you know, okay, you know, matter of fact, these all things, it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff crammed in there. Why would John choose to do that? I mean, to us in the 21st century, it almost looks like he's glossing over a whole bunch of really important details, because we know some of those details. Well, for John, he's not glossing over it at all. He knew that the people in his world, that uh, in his century, that w- would be reading these words, they would know exactly what these words were loaded with. They would know exactly what it was like. For example, those two words when it says the soldiers took charge, okay? When the soldiers would take charge of a condemned criminal, the first thing they would do was not nail him to the cross. They had to get over there to, 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 to where they were going to put the crosses so everybody could see them on the main highway. They would start the dying process right away with a thing called flogging. Now, you need to understand that this flogging that Jesus went through after the soldiers took charge uh, was a different thing than other kinds of flogging. You see, there were, there were th- uh, several kinds of flogging. There were several terms the Romans had uh, for flogging. I'm going to give you two of those terms, uh, the, the, the easiest kind of flogging and the most uh, heinous, uh, disgusting, horrible kind of uh, beginning the process of a person dying kind of flogging, okay? I'm going to try to pronounce the Latin because I I want you to be able to impress your friends. Here it is. The first kind is fustigagio. Fustigagio was sort of a mind troublemaker kind of uh, uh, flogging where someone had, you know, stolen something from the corner uh, 7-Eleven and they'd they'd flog them. Berberatio, however, That was when people began to die as the flogging was happening. Some people actually did die. Here's why you need to know this. Because a little known fact is is that Jesus almost certainly went through these two kinds of flogging. Because if you look back at chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate says, go flog him. That was one of those kinds of uh, fustigagio kind of flogging, which hurt. It was like with a leather strap, and it was like with a cane, and it hurt really bad. But you could get up and walk away from that one. And in fact, people did it all the time. What Pilate was probably doing was trying to get these crazy Jewish religious leaders off his back. Like giving him a whipping and sending him on his way because there was no crime. We're going to see this later. There was no crime that they could, he could charge him with. And, and so, so Pilate is just trying to get it out because he, he doesn't want Rome to, to, to be uh, you know, hearing about this. He just wants to get it over with, get it done. So he gives them this little whipping and said, okay, I did it. Now, let him, now leave me alone. And the, but they don't leave him alone. They call for Jesus to be crucified, crucified, crucified. And so finally, Pilate relents. And that is when the soldiers took him, which means they gave him the verberatio. Now, let me just describe this a little bit. In the verberatio, what would happen is that you would be... Uh, uh, over a stump or a rock, and you would be uh, secured there in some sort of shape of way, tied up on there. And they would whip you with a whip that had several strands of leather tongs. And in those leather tongs, there were pieces of glass and pieces of rock. You've probably heard of that before. But the point was, was to begin the dying process by tearing at the flesh. Some people did die on the stump. Some people 
had their bones and their internal organs uh, visible afterwards. And so Jesus has this kind of flogging, and you can begin to understand why nobody came out of that kind of flogging just getting popping right back up and walking down the road. Jesus was a strong man, I believe, because he was a carpenter. He carried wood around all the time. And growing up, he was probably in pretty good shape. But this flogging hit him so hard and so bad, he was already dying when he walked along the Via Della Rosa. He was so weak, remember, that he fell down. This is why. He fell down, so they, they brought Simon of Cyrene over to carry the cross piece of the cross, which um, Simon of Cyrene was almost certainly from North Africa, so all kinds of nationalities are in this story. By the way, that's, that's a footnote we ought not to forget. But what Jesus was carrying was just the cross piece of the cross. He, he, like, you know, in the movies and so forth where, where he's carrying the whole cross, that's not how it worked. They would just have the cross beam. Why? Because they knew they would, these guys were too weak to carry this thing, so they didn't want... They didn't want to have to carry it themselves, these Roman soldiers, so they, they uh, would put it on him, and that's why they grabbed Simon. They're not going to do this kind of work. So then they would attach it when they got there. You see, crucifixion was something that the Romans did not invent. They, they, uh, they took it from the Carthaginians in northern Africa, the Lib Libyan area, and, and, and so uh, those, uh, those Carthaginians took it from the Persians, but the Romans perfected it with a particular kind of evil because, you see, the point of Roman crucifixion was to give the person the worst possible kind of agony that would last the most possible days. Now, as we see, Jesus is going to die sooner, and there's some reasons for that. We'll get to that in a little bit, but, but the idea was to keep it going forever and ever. It was particularly evil in that sense because, here, for, for example, cruel and unusual. Uh, they would take this little piece of wood about this high, this long, maybe you've seen pictures of this, uh, this long, and they would attach it as a seat on the, the uh, up and down beam on the cross. And they would attach that thing there so that the victim could sit on it. But here's the thing, what killed you was not the nails. Some, some people, when they crucified them, didn't even nail them. They just tied them, they tied their feet, and they tied their hands to the cross. Jesus, they nailed but, but it wasn't that that killed you. What killed you was the exposure, the dehydration, but most of all, the asphyxiation, that you couldn't breathe anymore after a while. And you couldn't push yourself up to breathe anymore, because that's why they bent the legs. But this seat gave them a chance to sit for a minute. But it was attached just below where the person could breathe. So they'd have to push up, and therefore, tempting them to push themselves up time and time again, and trying to e extend their life and the misery that they were experiencing at that time. So Jesus is up there. He's, he's uh, been stripped naked, which is a, a complete humiliation and shame for the Jewish people. It says that in the, in the Old Testament. And not only that, being hung up on a tree and killed on a tree, that's a complete humiliation for a Jewish person. It says that in Leviticus. And so Jesus is there doing this. Now, enough of the gruesome details, because this is not a horror film. This is uh, an actual event. This is something that actually happened. What we need to understand is the reason the gospel writers express these kinds of things in the gospels when they say the word crucified, which by the way, that's the root word of another word that we use all the time. It's excruciating. That word is the root word is crucifixion. So you can see that this has affected our culture and our language as well. But where, G where Jesus was experiencing the most humiliating event that has ever been devised by human beings. I know that people in, in evil regimes have, um, have uh, 
created humiliating ways to die. But this was so public, and this was so out there, and when they took them to Golgotha, it wasn't necessarily a hill, or it necessarily even looked like a skull, but, but it was along a main road where people would pass by all the time, just outside the city. So nobody could miss it, so everyone would be understand that the message was this. This is a non-person, this is a nobody, this is somebody who deserves to die and did a terrible thing, and you better not do it, or you will be just like him. You don't want to be like this person. And yet, what's the whole point of the Jesus movement? It's becoming exactly like him. That Jesus said it over again. Follow me. Be like me as I am like my heavenly father. Isn't that interesting? So so you, you begin to look at that and it begins to explain some things like uh, this whole history uh, of, of the crucifixion uh, begins to explain uh, some things like, uh, beginning in verse 19, what Pilate does here. Pilate had a notice prepared to fasten to the cross to read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Again, everybody could pass by. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek so that Everybody could understand it, uh, in other words, in their own language, right? And, and you, you begin to ask the question, wait, 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 wait. So Pilate has a sign made king of the, the king of the Jews? Is Pilate a sympathizer? Is he a, is he a believer? Or is he a teaser? The answer is he's a teaser. And here's why he's a teaser. It's because uh, what, what he's trying to do here is to tease the Jews but to satisfy the Romans. You see, Pilate was like every other proconsul, king, small k, uh, governor in the entire empire in all of the provinces. None of them really had all that much clout except in their own area. And if, if any of this hoo-ha got to the ears of Caesar, Pilate would likely either be removed or worse. So he was on the bubble. He did not want the bubble to pop. He wanted to get this off his plate, out of the way for as much as possible. And when he puts the sign up, it's like you're going to see later, the Jews, you know, when they, when they say, no, we, we don't want that sign up there. And he, he can just look at him and say, pound sand and get off my back. And if, if um, a Roman person came up and said, well, what's with this? He can say, hey, hey, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. And, you know, Caesar's the only king. So he's giving himself an out. And in fact, the Jews, uh, Jewish uh, um, leaders yelled at him back up in verse 12, where we, we didn't look yet, but they said, if you don't crucify this guy, you're no friend of Caesar. So this is a way of, of Pilate countering that. So the question is, Pilate can't crucify somebody just for some local religious crime, because Pilate and the, the empire doesn't care about that. So they got to come up with something that we, they could accuse him of to be able to do this. So what he came up with, a phony charge to be sure, but he came up with the, the charge of sedition. Almost certainly sedition because it was he, king, there's only one king and that's supposed to be Caesar. But this guy's the king of the Jews. So that's reason to crucify him. That's reason to go right at him, to go, to, to go right on to Jesus. You see, the, 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 the thing about, about this is that Jesus were constantly, I mean, people were constantly trying to get Jesus to challenge the empire. I mean, you know, pit him against Caesar. You know, and, and he would say things like, well, no, give to God what's God's and give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. Or they'd say, well, wait, wait, wait. 
are you trying to start a new kingdom? And then he would disappoint him. He says, oh, did I forget to mention? My kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate, you've got nothing to be threatened by me. Uh, Caesar, you've got nothing to be threatened by me. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it would, it would just spin people's heads around. Religious scholars would try to get him to, uh, to, to prove uh, in front of other people that he had violated the Old Testament law. And yet Jesus, time and time again, shows that he's fulfilling the law. In fact, he's bumping it up. He's not denying it. He's fulfilling it. And, and it just it spun them around and around and around. So they came up with this phony charge of sedition. And, and here's why it's phony. It's because of Jesus' message. Jesus' message, uh, you know, you, th you think, well, wait a minute, what's wrong? what's wrong with Jesus' message? Well, there's nothing wrong with Jesus' message, but in terms of this situation and this trial and this, this um, charge, here's the problem. It's phony because Jesus didn't ever advocate, ever, liberation or revolution on a political scale. He never did that. He didn't do that. He, he instead, Jesus' message was all about Jesus, it was about him. Jesus put himself right in the center of his message. It wasn't his teaching that was what was in the center. You see, this isn't Buddha who creates these, all these great ideas and follow my ideas. This wasn't even Gandhi. Follow my political ideas, which, you know, um, nonviolence, that's a great idea. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was higher than that. In fact, politics... And culture was small potatoes compared to what Jesus was up to. That's what he was trying to say. I'm, be, I'm, I'm above and beyond all that. You guys are missing the whole point. It, because here's the thing. Jesus' message was all about Jesus. He never asked his followers to trust uh, in his ideas. Trust being a, probably a better translation of the word gnosko than, than um of faith, the faith word, it's better than believe. The word trust means to lean in, to be all in. To be. So he's asking us to put all ourselves in trust, uh, not with his ideas, but he instructed his followers to trust him because he was the center of the whole thing. He was the beginning of the whole thing. He was the source of everything beyond his ideas. You see, Jesus says this um, over, over and over again. Uh, for example, in just a few chapters previous, in John chapter 14, remember those famous words? Do not be, let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Not in this idea, not in this thing, not in this mathematical equation, not any of that. Trust in me. Which, you know... When you look at that and you start thinking about that and how all these people were just trying to sort of calculate that in their own ways, you can, you can begin to see why, um, how, how these leaders and Pilate kind of missed the whole point. But, but think about this. Think about how we uh, tend to miss the cultural, getting so locked up in our culture, getting so locked up in, in uh, the ideas of the day and the crises of the day that we miss the point, the bigger point of what God is up to in our world. But here's, look, look at how they're missing the point. See if this sounds familiar. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written, go stick your head in the sewer, you know, something. Right, I mean, he's just, he's just basically saying, nope, 
we're done here, go home. And that's, that's why he's, 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 he's saying this, because he's finally taking charge of this. You see, Jesus knew that since he had put himself at the center of, of all of this, that he uh, knew that the question was, who is this guy really? That's why Pilate keeps trying to find out, who do you think you are? Because remember, Jesus up in Caesarea Philippi in the far outer recesses, the northern recesses of, of Palestine, that's what the Jews called Israel, the Israel region. The Jews call, call in Palestine, way up there in the north, in Caesarea Philippi, he says to his disciples, who do, people, who do you think I am? And Peter speaks up for the group like he always does. He says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And Jesus didn't go, oh, come on, let's, let's not get carried away here. No, he says, you're right. In fact, the Father has revealed this to you. And you see this in all the things that Jesus does, even things like when he does a miracle. For example, in John chapter 11, when, when Jesus is told that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, he, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, send these messengers. He finds out Lazarus is sick and he's about to die. And the disciples said, so we, should we go? Should we go to Bethany to, to see if? No, we're going to wait. What? I mean, I, can you imagine John decades later thinking, I wonder if I should put this in the story because that really makes Jesus look bad, right? He waited for his friend to die. And after his friend had died, four days or something like that, he went to, to uh, Bethany to their house to where Lazarus was entombed. And, and Mary and Martha run out and they say stuff that, you know, maybe you've said to God when, when, when uh, you haven't had your prayers answered. You know, God, you're late. You didn't answer my prayers. And, and remember, Jesus goes into a deep theological discussion about his ideas on what life and death really is. Remember that? No, he didn't say that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Taking himself and putting himself right in the center of what this thing called Jesus following is. Doesn't mean the teachings aren't important. They've saved us over and over again. They're life-giving. But that's not the core. That's not the foundation. And when you, when you begin to think about this, all of this situation, try to imagine and put yourself in the shoes of these people, these disciples, most of whom had run off and weren't anywhere to be seen. And before we call them a big bunch of chickens, think, factor this in. Here is the one whom they had come to know as their savior, the one who was going to save themselves, save their families, save their country, and this gruesome, horrible thing is happening right before their eyes to him. And then they see uh, stuff like this. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, and the undergarment remaining, uh, the, uh, which was the garment closest to his skin, this garment was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. Some people have seen symbolism in that. I just think it was an expensive, you know, something that you didn't see every day and they wanted to keep it in one piece. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled and said, that said they divided his clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So there was a prophecy about this. So that is, this is what the soldiers did. So John says, that's what they were doing while we were doing what we were doing. Imagine they're just looking at the scene. Uh, John is there. there. We'll see in a minute. There, there's four other women there. And, and they're seeing this and they're watching this. And, 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 and the, the, the soldiers kneel down, not to worship, not to honor, but to gamble. 
for his, for his clothes and for his things. Now think about this, okay? So John is, is relaying this. He, he had run away too at the garden, but now he'd come back. Um, was he hiding behind Mary's skirt and whatnot? I don't know. But he was back. He was a young guy, probably maybe not even out of his teens. He could have been like 19. We, do, we just don't know. But he certainly wasn't much more than 20 or 21. And he's standing there with them, and he's watching this kind of thing. And if you're going to write a fictional story to try and pump up somebody you thought was a hero, wouldn't you, would you put yourself in the story as a coward? No, I mean, it's make-believe anyway. Why would you not make yourself at least look like a decent human being? Why, why, would, why would everybody run away? Or say that it, why would you say everybody ran away if it was just a fictional story? There, there's, there's no reason to put this detail in there unless it actually happened. I mean, you know, who, who do you identify with when you watch a movie? I know identity is a big thing nowadays, and some people say, I identify with the coward. Whatever, go ahead. But nobody would really, until five years ago, identify with the coward. That's just not the case. And so why would John put this kind of thing in there, and why would the gospel writers put this in there? Because Every single one of them admitted saying, I was hiding, I was running away. Peter admitted that he had denied him three times, just like Jesus said he would. Not just denied him, but said, I don't know the guy, I don't like the guy, and then he cussed about it. I mean, who would do that if it wasn't true? It, it makes no sense whatsoever if it wasn't true. And, and, and yet that's exactly what we see here. All the people around uh, Jesus at this moment were cowards. And look what happens, look who shows up here in a moment, a little bit later. Near the cross, Jesus stood his mother, so there's one, his mother's sister, two, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary the Magdalene, four women. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he had loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From this, that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So we know that John uh, took her into his home, took care of her uh, it, it, until uh, the end of her life. This is Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. Uh, but, but look, at there's four women and John, John there. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of all the humiliation, the point John is trying to make when he says that we are cowards and we ran away is that we knew that you know, people who have humiliated have been humiliated, do not start major movements that last very long. There is no other example in history of anyone being utterly humiliated and having a movement that goes on for a few years and years and decades, let alone for two millennia. And John's saying, that's the deal. And he includes this other little fact that it was the women that were there. Okay? Why does he put that in there? Is he trying to say men shape up? No, I think it's a deeper point than that. I think that what he's trying to say in his world, you need to understand that this was a big, big deal to put women in your story, especially this many women and all the men are running away. Big deal in his world. Because it was a dangerous thing if you wanted your story to last very long. Women in those days, it was a stupid, goofy idea. They weren't allowed to be, uh, you know, to tr that people say, you know, you wouldn't trust them. Now, what's weird about the Roman Empire is there are many women who actually were the ones who were the real power uh, brokers behind the scenes. 
Uh, but in the common parlance, you know, uh, it was women couldn't be trusted. In fact, they couldn't even testify in court. And, and it's a stupid, evil, weird, dumb thing. But before we um, get too judgmental, let's remember that in our, even in our own justice system, we've got some pretty stupid, uh, goofy things. Sorry if there's a kid here and I use the word stupid. Um, you know, things, right? I mean, we, we do. So, so why does John include these women in his story? Because the women were at the foot of the cross because they were actually at the foot of the cross. They were actually the ones with the guts to stand there and, and to be there and to try and take care of things. And by the way, let's not go to the resurrection too quickly because I want us to think about this and go uh, kind of pray through this this week. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But on Easter Sunday morning, who was it that shows up first? It's these women that take care of that and, and go forward with that, right? And so John brings that in and, and, and tries to help us understand that. And by the way, this is why even secular historians today, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, this wouldn't be true. But even secular historians today, all, almost all, I mean, I, I've not, you, don't, you have a hard time finding any secular historian who tries to deny the existence of Jesus anymore. And it's because of this, stuff like this. In fact, no has, secular historian will deny that Jesus was crucified in this way. Because of this. Because they can't factor in why John would put these kinds of details in his story any other way unless it actually happened. But look what happens next. This is really important. I'm going to read through the death of Jesus here and just pull out a couple of details. But this is really important to our faith, especially this week. It says in verse um, um, 28, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So being thirsty, being dehydrated was a part of the torture of this thing. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Now, please understand this. This is not a cry of defeat. He musters all that he's got left, and he bursts out with, it is finished. This word finished is the word for the completion. It's the Greek word telos. What's interesting about this word is it's found in an archaeological dig in Egypt. We recently found this in the last couple of decades. Found in, in an archaeological dig in Egypt, we found a, a note, a receipt for something somebody bought, and on the bottom of it is written the word telos. Because the word telos doesn't just mean finished, it means paid in full. Why would Jesus say paid in full? Because John, uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And he's saying, it's done. I've killed it. I've killed death. And then uh, he died. With this, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now in that, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was the, uh, to be a special day of, of Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want to, the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he had already, was already dead and he did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers burst, 
uh, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Okay, what's, what, what, what's John giving us this kind of, you know, forensic detail for? Because he's trying to say that was a sign, that is a sign that somebody has died. I, I have a friend who died uh, years ago hiking in Colorado. Nobody really knew he had a heart defect, a heart problem, and his heart basically burst. And when they got in there to do the autopsy, this is what they found, the blood and water. In fact, what's interesting is, is that uh, a friend of theirs who's a surgeon in Southern California, they lived in Southern California, and asked the, uh, my friend's wife, hey, could I take the autopsy and just kind of give you my, my uh, information? Maybe I can bring some clarity to what actually happened. And, and as I, he, she let me read the report. As it, re, as it went through this report, it came down to the bottom conclusion. He goes, basically, your husband's heart burst. And he died just like his Savior died. Isn't that interesting? That's the exact, John, people who are in, in the ancient world weren't stupid. They knew what this was. And, and secondly, uh, the, the, to, to, so, so John is trying to say that this person was dead. That when the Roman soldiers come along not breaking his legs, these guys were not going to risk not doing what they were told and not making sure somebody was dead. These guys had the sixth sense, right? They saw dead people every day. They knew what it meant for a person to be dead. They would never risk it otherwise. So that's why they did the spear thing. Now, we know that it was prophesied that that would happen. So it fit prophecy. They didn't know that. But these, these, guys, these guys do this every day, all the time. And so they were, they were skilled at death. They wouldn't ever let it happen. You see, the reason John is doing this is he's saying, please understand me, please understand me. He was dead. Why is that such a big deal? Because John was already battling something that we've seen come up a few times. About every 40 to 50 years, somebody pulls this out of the old mothball closet. The idea that Jesus just kind of fainted and passed out, and then when he got in the grave, he kind of rose up. It happened in the 60s with a big book that came out there. Oh, maybe it's true, proven to be a bunch of hooey. Uh, then the, um, um, in, in, in the early 2000s, it came up again. Why? why you know, why would anybody say that with this kind of evidence? I mean, really, there's an intellectual, philosophical term for that kind of thinking that would come up with the idea that Jesus just fainted and passed out from all this. The term is hogwash. It just, there's no way. You can, you, there's no, no way you can look at this and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure he walked away from that. You see, he's saying, please, please understand me. In fact, look how he puts a point on it. Verse 35, the man who saw it. Remember, John is very shy about saying his name. When he talked about the disciple whom Jesus loved a minute ago, uh, standing there with the women, uh, he wasn't saying, I'm the one that Jesus loved. No, he's saying, I, I, it, was a, it was more of a, a humble thing. It was like, I don't even deserve to have my name in here. And that's why he's doing this here. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. That is you, John. He knows that his, he tells the truth. And he testifies so that also you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was, will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. You see, when he says this, what this screams is, this is not about us. I'm taking myself out of the picture, but I got to tell you what I saw. This is not about us. 
And, and, and he's, he's trying to help us understand that because he, he, he knows. He knows that there's no resurrection. There's no life after this life. There's no forgiveness if there's not a death first. Why? It's because of those stinking wages of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And we know that eternal life is not just longevity of life. It's knowing and experiencing God starting now on into eternity more and more and more experience, more and more knowing, more and more relating and relationship and experience of him. And that's what, that's what he's talking about. He knows that. In fact, everybody that would read his document, everybody that would read his gospel would have remembered the prophecies. That's why he keeps bringing up these prophecies because they're proof to them. This was hundreds of years ago, but look, it happened. For example, they would know the prophecy of Zechariah of what would happen on that day. Look what Zechariah said. He said, the Lord, their God, will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. And then over a couple chapters later, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from the sin and impurity. That's exactly what was happening. John knows this. He's alluding to it left and right. There was this fountain, and it turned out to be the fountain of nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ, remember? That's why this cross of Christ is so powerful and shoots out the movement of Christianity so strongly the way that it does. You see, the point that John is trying to make is, yes, we re-engaged, but it wasn't about us. Because Jesus' followers didn't re-engage because of something Jesus taught. It wasn't that they took his, his teachings and they go, ah, yeah, okay, we got this, and, and figured it out on their own. It was because the followers of Jesus re-engaged because of something they saw, including all those prophecies coming true. And John, I think, is probably coming to the point where he's beginning to ask, when he's beginning to think about you know, uh, 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 these decades later, he, after, you know, he's looking at the 35,000 feet level by that time. He's seeing the bigger picture. He's lived the life with Jesus in his 80 or 90-year-old self. And, and he's, he's looking at this, and he's, he's thinking about it, and then he remembers that day. And maybe in his mind, this is just speculation on my part, so, you know, not scripture, don't think it is. But maybe in his mind he's thinking, you know, even I was, I was standing there with Mary, Mary and her sister and Clopas' wife and so forth. As I'm standing there, I remember in all of my heartbrokenness, in all of my deep sorrow, I had this inkling that maybe this thing's not over yet. And that is right at the moment where we find ourselves in the cross because this is the message, the message that he did this because there had to be a death that the fountain had to be open to take care of our sin and iniquity. And, and so, so the, the, the early apostles, what did they preach? Over and over again. It's the exact same thing that Peter concisely says in Acts chapter 3 on his, his second sermon when he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses. And we'll get to that part, the second half of that next week. But I want us to live in the comma this week and think about the wonder of what Jesus 
did for us. And consider maybe deeply, maybe deeper than you have in a long, long time, what exactly it is that he had done and what exactly had happened. And, and think about this. You say the, I say the name Nero, and you remember somebody's dog that named their dog Nero. But he, in, his, in this day, he was the guy that all you know is, is he fed Christians to animals and lions, right? And then there's Augustus. He was even bigger than Nero. He reigned longer than any other Caesar. He was the guy that started the whole son of God, savior of the world cult around the Caesars. But he did amazing things for Rome, really. I mean, from a political and, uh, you know, building kind of way and a conquering kind of way. He was, he was an amazing dude. But the only time you know, anything you know about him is when he shows up in the second verse of Luke chapter 2 at Christmas time. You know, I said, oh, by the way, it was in Augustus's time period. Or Vespasian or uh, uh, Titus or any of those guys. You don't know anything about it. You don't even know anything about the great Roman gladiators except for Russell Crowe. Right? You know nothing about any of that, right? At all. How in the world do we know all this about these, this one, this hero that started the movement? It begins to, to dawn on you that there's got to be a bigger God factor in this thing. That we are here. Because this, the devil, we've already seen, took out all his big guns. He came out guns blading right from the get-go, thought he had them. Thought he'd finally gotten God. Did the worst possible thing he could do. And yet, it wasn't enough. And decades later, as John is trying to sort this out, and how can I get this across to people? He says something. He remembers the teaching of Jesus to one certain Pharisee guy named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at nighttime. And in the end, Jesus explains the gospel to him. And John summarizes that gospel in a verse that if you're a Christian, you've heard it 7,000 times, and that's part of the problem of being a human being because when we hear it 7,000 times, we don't think about it anymore. But the point and the reason for all of this and that we need to kind of live with and live into this week and as we start communion and go on this journey of Holy Week this week, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, oh, that was why. He gave his only son, the only begotten son, his only son. Think about what that would be like as a human being. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have that eternal experiencing God, knowing God, experiencing Jesus, living with Jesus, life. That's why he did it, because he was going to take our wages and get this thing fixed and done and start everything new once and for all. That's what it is. So here's the reality. No matter how many bad Christian experiences you've had, no matter how many people you've been in business with and they were kind of crooked and they called themselves a Christian, no matter how many bad church experiences you've had, no matter how many unanswered prayers you've had, no matter how long you've been a Christian, so much so that you think you know everything all over again, already, why doesn't Jesus just take me home? I've got it all figured out. I know nobody does that. But sometimes we kind of gloss over all this to the point where it's like, eh, we really don't take it in, do we? I, I, I know I am. I'm, I'm right there. But this is the beginning of the whole thing, what God did, this wondrous thing. And as we take communion today, I want you to sit with the fact that he has taken all of your wages for the sin of your life, and he's given you this forgiveness and just 
begin this week to just thank him. Thank you, Lord. Even if that's all you say. Every week, every day, thank you for what you did and where you went and what happened. Just as we take communion today, let's just do that, okay? And think that. In fact, let's start by praying together for what we're about to do. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your only son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you doesn't seem right for what you went through to pay our wages. But I pray that this week would be the kind of impactful week. Not because of all the things we do, although we want to do those because we want to honor you. But because you, by your spirit, go to the heart and show us that love that is so incredible that it is for so God so loved the word world, the, the so of the love of the world. Show us how deeply that so goes. As we worship you now and we sing this song, we're going to pray this prayer that we sing. Uh, and uh, would you just help us as we worship you and honor you with this opportunity to share together and with you this meal that represents what you went through on the cross in your body and your blood that we know a little bit more about now. Would you take that deep into every heart, mine included, and make this the day that we begin an Easter season, a holy week like no other. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you as much as we know how. Amen. So as you feel led, if you're a believer in Christ, this is for you to go to the four tables around as we sing this song. Make it our prayer. Uh, make it our prayer that, Lord, take this deep into me and show me how real you are to me.